Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Julie Jacobson of Spay, Tennessee, and she's also the grants coordinator for the Community Cats Grants Program. Julie, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Hey, Stacy, Thanks for having me. Yeah. Julie's been on the show several other times, so if you want to hear more about her background and how she got started in running Spay, Tennessee, feel free to go to communitycatspodcast.com and put in the search bar, Julie, and all of her various webinars with us, as well as her podcast will come up and you can check out about Julie's background. But today, we're going to talk a bit about the Community Cat Grants Program and just get a little bit of an update. Julie, how are things going with the Community Cats Grants Program? Well, things were going great. You know, we're recording this in March, or I'm sorry, in April, in the middle of the coronavirus. So a lot of the fundraising efforts are on hold, and we're having to extend the window for fundraising opportunities. The groups that are trying to get their cats fixed within a certain time frame, most of them have no available services, so we're extending that as well. So things are pretty much on hold in April right now, and hopefully we can get back going again soon, because we do have a number of applicants applications to look at. And one of the big things, we do have a webinar about the application process and filling that out. One of the big things that seems to be a bugaboo for a lot of people is the live release rate. If you don't know what a live release rate is, you can always Google that, but it really is if you have an adoption program, what percentage of your animals are released alive and what percentage may have to be euthanized or whatever. But Googling comes up with a lot of good information, but we do really want an answer in there. So just look at the live release rate. And we've really worked hard to try and keep that application effective, but yet also pretty streamlined. I know we've also had a couple of questions around the GuideStar profile. Can you explain a little bit about what GuideStar is and why is it important to have a profile there? GuideStar is a big database, and anytime you become a nonprofit, the IRS automatically puts you in the system based on your EIN number. And so you have a blank profile. It's a placeholder, basically. But a lot of big donors and foundations, including Community Cats podcast people, (laughs) we look at GuideStar to see, have you bothered to put in your profile? It doesn't have to be fancy. You can do a whole bunch of things and get to platinum status. We're not looking for that. We're looking to see, did you at least complete this? So someone looking for you to see if you're a legitimate organization can at least find your mission statement and perhaps just some basic basic financial data about your organization and when you started. And there might even be some folks on the show today who don't even know what the Community Cats Grants Program is all about. Can you share the details about our process, what it involves in order to be able to get the $1,000 matching grant? Sure. Uh, Groups would apply. And yes, it is for spay-neuter of community cats. That's what the money is for. It's not for clinic operations or for your horse rescue or for any other purpose. And it's not for getting kittens adoption ready. It really is for spay-neuter of the community cats in your area. So you would have, once you're approved, we go through a process and you have about a three-month window to do fundraising. 
fundraising. And it has to be a new fundraising idea. And that does mean something you have not done before. Selling a new t-shirt design is not a new fundraising idea, for example. But we have a lot of good ideas from other groups that have succeeded. And we work with you to help make sure you've got an idea that we think can work in that time frame. And you can even do more than one idea if you don't think you can raise $1,000 on one event or one effort. You can do more than one thing in that window. And then if you can raise $1,000 or more, a lot of groups do succeed in raising more than that. But Community Cats Podcast will match up to the $1,000. And so if you don't raise 1000 Community Cats Podcast will match less than that. But after the three-month fundraising period and you get the matching funds, then you can start fixing cats. And then we also want a second report from you about how many cats were actually fixed. So there's been some really good stories about colonies that have been cleaned up and groups that have really been able to make a difference in their area, just helping get the word out about their program. So there's three months of fundraising. And then as you're raising your money, you can be spending it on the spay neuter. And after you get the match, then there'll be another deadline for reporting on the number of cats fixed. So we've had over 100 groups participate. They've raised over $145,000 with over 5,700 cats fixed through this effort. That's a fantastic statistic, one that I think you should be proud of because you facilitated most of this effort. So thank you, Julie, for heading this up because I wouldn't be able to do it without you. So I appreciate it very much that you're sharing part of your time with us in the Community Cats podcast. Appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the really good applications and the the really serious work that a lot of these groups are doing. and, And they feel alone and they're realizing that, hey, maybe we're not the only ones doing this. Right. Because you do have group calls, so they get to meet each other, too, in this process, right? Yes, yes, and liberally share ideas amongst ourselves. So that's really good, too. So, yes, you mentioned that we are recording in April, and this is slated to come out in August. So right now, you know, times are pretty tough. It's the middle of April. As you said, most of the spay-neuter clinics have been closed. How are you feeling today? (laughs) I'm actually feeling rather despondent. To put it mildly, you know, I live in a, a small rural community in Tennessee, a county of 11,000 people with no animal control, no shelter, and no veterinarian. And what I've come to realize is I'm not alone either. There's a lot of counties like us in Tennessee. And then, again, with the Community Cats podcast grant, realizing how many are across the country in communities with little to no animal welfare services. In fact, Tennessee has 95 counties, and over half of them have no animal control or shelters which is people have a hard time getting their head around that. And it is kind of difficult to imagine. But this is why one reason I think, one reason I'm despondent is when spay-neuter is our only weapon for animal welfare, the only tool that we have, I do consider it an essential service. And I realize there's a lot of reasons that the clinics are closing and other organizations don't think spay-neuter is essential. But from where I sit, where you stand on an issue depends on where you sit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where I sit, I do think spay-neuter is essential because for many of us in rural areas across the country, it is the only tool we have at our disposal for tackling animal abandonment and homelessness and all the other issues. So let me run this scenario by you. If you did have a shelter in your community, would you feel less despondent or is it just from the standpoint of basically we, you and I, meaning, and hopefully some of our listeners feel that really spay-neuter is the critical element to creating success with regards to reducing overpopulation, 
you know, no matter what, even in a community where there is a sheltering program, that still that spay neuter is an essential part of what we should have going on through this pandemic. Well, absolutely. And one thing I do find that not having a shelter option is often a great incentivizer to the public to get their pets spayed and neutered because there isn't, you know, air quotes, dumping ground, a place for them to bring the litters. But again, in the middle of this pandemic, the shelters that they've decided to no longer alter before adoption and let things, you know, go out unfixed, it makes me cringe because I think it will set us back a long ways. Already, again, most of Tennessee counties don't even have shelters. Most of them, that do have shelters are, well, first of all, they don't even deal with cats, but they already do not alter before adoption. And seeing the country go back to a standard where that is not the norm is just a little depressing to me because we all know the vouchers don't work. And I do hope that people are paying attention. And when this airs in August, that there has been some kind of really aggressive follow-up program to track those animals down and make sure that they have, in fact, been fixed. Because it's not enough just to hand them a voucher and and then not do any follow-up or make sure that that's happened or that the voucher has been redeemed, you know, but that the pet has been fixed. So I'm of the belief that this is not the last time we're going to have to go through something like this. I think that we very well may have another a cycle with regards to the coronavirus where we may have to do more social distancing. Are there ways to do spay-neuter in a socially distanced, like in a safe environment? Is it possible to put some protections and safety measures in there? Or do you know of clinics that you work with that would be able to have a protocol in place where they could keep doing their business, but yet do it in a safe way? Well, I know that some areas that have clinics embedded inside the shelter, they're able to do some safe things, and they are oftentimes able to still spay-neuter those animals before adoption. That's across the country. I know in Tennessee, some clinics tried to have uh, very strict protocols, limit the number of clients who could come in on a day or just have appointments, and they never they were supposed to wait in their cars <laughs> and then have the clinic staff meet them and just never get out of the vehicle. And the paperwork was already pre-done in order to just socially distance and absolutely limit the exposure. Unfortunately, though, it turns out a lot of the public does not follow instructions. Again, I'm in Tennessee. We are not doing very well at stay at home, I don't think. You know, I have had to go out to take my own pet to the vet, and traffic seems pretty normal to me around this area. But yeah, so being dependent on the public following instructions is, then that clinic is no longer open to the public because it just, it was too hard to get them to follow instructions and too much risk. So I think there are ways it could happen if everyone complied. If everybody is willing to follow the rules and that kind of thing. And I agree with you on that one. My other concern with regards to the sudden stop in spays and neuters and vaccinations is not even the surgery component, but the vaccination, the fact that there are going to be a lot of cats and dogs out there that aren't going to have rabies vaccines. And so I just didn't know if you had any concerns with regards to that you know, they perform a a disease barrier between the wildlife and people. At least that's been my understanding about one of the reasons why we want to make sure our animals are all vaccinated against rabies. And so I wonder if that's a consideration too. 
I think that it is, you know, what most of us see in our spay-neuter programs is, you know, like 90% of the clients have never been to a vet and are not current on rabies. Our, of our 100 or so spay-neuter assistance programs and clinics in Tennessee, we mostly try to require that the animal get current on rabies at the time of surgery. Many of our clinics, it's a free rabies vaccine with the surgery, which is great. So yeah, none of those are happening, and none of those rabies vaccines. And we are seeing rabies in the state, mostly in skunks. And I think there was a bat, but we are seeing some this year. So yeah, that too is a little bit frightening as far as protecting the herd. Right. So this is a human health issue too, the fact that these programs are coming to a halt. So I think that there's a lot of multiple factors that need to be considered. As I said, I think we may be faced with this again. So we need to try and think through this process. And, you know, was it really that critical? Is there a way to work around so that we were still able to ensure that these cats were getting spayed or neutered? Or also on the flip side of this too, I know that there's human life and there's economic life that is talked about in the news all the time, but the economic life of many of these clinics means bankruptcy and closure as a result of this. Are you hearing that from any of the clinics that you work with that they're just in real financial straits and may not make it through this? Yes, depending on how long this lasts. They depend on volume. Their fees are low for the services that they provide, so there's just really little margin. So they depend on the volume to just make their income to be able to pay the salaries and for their building and their utilities and all of their costs. Many of them don't have a lot in reserves and it's quickly going to get eaten up. And many don't really think it's viable or practical, I guess I should say, to take out a big loan of thirty or $50,000 just to be able to stay open and cover costs while everything is closed. And again, their staffs are being laid off. Are those people going to go find other jobs? Are they going to be available when this clears up? It's really hard to say what will happen. I'm, again, I fear a complete loss of services in some areas that already you know, had little to nothing. And I mean, you and I both know that Veterinary technicians and veterinarians are like gold in this business. And if we are not financially supporting them through this, not keeping them connected to the organization, and then there are some organizations that are going to be able to keep their doors open and maybe recruiting for a veterinarian or for technicians, as you say, they may end up going in another direction and not stay vested with that organization. So for a small group that had to work really hard to get a veterinarian in, which I see your posts several times where there are organizations looking for veterinarians. I mean, you are a good recruiter for that area. You know how hard it is to get them down there. And then, you know, if they have to go and find another option somewhere else because they have to pay their own mortgage, you know, all that work has just gone down the drain and it's starting all over again. Right. And I do fear there will be clinics who close, not just in Tennessee, but, you know, across the country for a lot of those reasons. Providing a safe and nurturing environment is every cat caregiver's top priority. The American Association of Feline Practitioners understands your cat's natural behaviors and aims to supply you with tips and resources to help you provide the very best care for your cat. Join our cat community by visiting catfriendly.com and you can sign up for our newsletter. This website was designed to be a place where cat caregivers can receive credible and trustworthy information from veterinarians on a variety of topics just for cats. Learn ways to understand your cat's unique characteristics and behaviors, how to keep your cat healthy, and the importance of routine veterinary care. Did you know that August 22nd is National Take Your Cat to the Vet Day? 
make sure you visit catfriendly.com to find out why it is important to take your cat to the veterinarian for his or her annual checkup. Get tips on how to make it a less stressful experience for you and your cat. You can also search for a cat-friendly practice near you. Don't wait. Visit catfriendly.com today. Does your cat have dazzling eyes and an effervescent personality? Is your adopted kitty the most beautiful in your eyes? The Cat Fanciers Association wants to invite you and your cat to join its new Companion Cat World program. Since 1906, CFA has had a deep love and respect for all cats, no matter what their breed. Companion Cat World is part of our mission to make all cats' lives better with love and celebration. You and your cat can join for just $13. Plus, your cat will be showcased in a CFA gallery. You'll get exclusive discounts on cat food, toys, and supplies, plus a customized membership card. You'll get to attend events and the chance to compete in the household pet category in our regional, national, and international cat shows. And a portion of your fee will benefit homeless cat rescues and shelters throughout the world. Check us out at www.cfa.org. Do you struggle to find foster homes for your animals? Are you struggling to communicate with your fosters and keep track of what they need? Introducing Foster Space, powered by Dubert, where recruiting and communicating with your fosters just got a whole lot easier. Need a new foster for an animal? Simply create the foster request in Dubert and it will automatically send to existing Duberteers and also post on your Facebook pages and groups. Need to communicate with your fosters? No problem. Dubert makes it easy to communicate via text with individual fosters or to get messages out to your different groups of fosters. Your fosters can even put in help desk style tickets for questions or supplies they need, and the Dubert system will help you keep track and stay organized. Check out Foster Space by signing in on your Dubert account today at www.dubert.com. You know, it, it is about money. I mean, I, we certainly don't want people to lose their lives, and we want everybody to stay healthy through all of this, but we also want to be willing to think about and consider other options and opportunities out there because we know that our community cats that are out there are having emergencies that we don't know about. Many of the clinics say, oh, we can assist for emergencies, but, you know, who knows what pyometria cat is out there, you know, who's pregnant right now? You know, who knows what cat's got an eye infection without it being visibly seen if you're feeding the cats at night. You know, who knows who needs a full mouth extraction? We don't know these things until we've got the cats trapped. And that's where the conundrum is, is that we know that there are emergency cases out there that need assistance, but they only come in through our trapping efforts. Correct. Yeah. I just really fear for the suffering that will happen. And we'll also have more kittens in the South. We will also have really different transport. Or do you think transport will change? Do you think transport will just start up again? I know you have thoughts on transport, but what are your thoughts post no transport going into this sort of the next generation here? Yeah, I do have a lot of thoughts on transporting animals from the south to the north. And, you know, full disclosure, I have, for years, I transported dogs and puppies from here up to New England. However, my goal was always to do fewer every year and not more. What I did learn in my experience is there was an awful lot of fly-by-night 
places because there had been some pretty strong transport programs. I know PetSmart Charities had started one called the Rescue Wagon. They had very strict criteria. They had temperament testing and they had a lot of paperwork required and medical things, which was all the right and smart thing to do. However, what it did was spawn kind of a cottage industry with a lot of fly-by-night outfits who felt like they could do it cheaper and better. And there was horror stories abound about animals stacked in just U-Haul trailers behind a truck, not temperature controlled. And then there's an accident and the animals get loose on the highway, on the interstate. And this happened more than once. And I've also heard of places where they would do a transport and they were so busy moving animals to send them to the north, air quotes, you know, where they're needed, which just always made me cringe. But they wouldn't even clean the crates between transport events. So I don't think they were helping anything. They try to forge the paperwork. They lie about the temperament and health status of the animals. There's a lot of just shady, shady rescues, at least here in the South. I know that people should at least Google Earth, whoever their partner is. If you are taking in animals from down here, Google Earth that location. It probably looks a lot like a puppy mill in some cases. I know Espay, Tennessee, I see pleas and people want to get a pregnant dog pulled out of a shelter in Tennessee, and I will offer to pay 100% for the spay of that pregnant dog, and no one has ever taken me up on that because they want the puppies to be born to send them to New England where they're needed. And yeah, trust me, they they really do say things like that. So we've already had this perception that we in the South can't help ourselves, but we really can. We did have a lot of spay-neuter resources. We were really making a lot of progress, uh, at least here in Tennessee. And now with this shutdown, and I just fear that people won't pay attention to the right ways to do transport. Again, there should be some paperwork. There should be some medical criteria. Ideally, they are spayed and neutered before they get shipped. You got to really trust your destination shelter to be doing the right thing, too. As a destination shelter, I think that you also have some responsibilities because this, whatever transport programs exist or get created or get renewed, I think a lot of the schedules and the, the sources, it should be a temporary measure. It should not be seen to be a crutch that's going to last for 10 years, which is what a lot of things have happened. I think the destinations can require that the sources alter before adoption. You know, you simply aren't going to take any animals from that shelter or that group if they are not altering before adoption and helping solve their own problem in their community. If you are getting litters of kittens or puppies, I think you need to make sure that at the source, the parents are at least being spayed and neutered. And again, we don't want to create a cottage industry that's a bunch of fly-by-night stuff because there isn't a lot of government oversight on this. It is interstate transport. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has some rules, and there are some companies that are doing it right. I know Pets Peterson Express Transport Service that operates here in Cookville, and they pull from you know Texas and Arkansas, and they they make several stops. It's petsllc.com to see their route, but they they are pretty strict which is, again, I love me some rules and regulations because <laughs> I think it is in the best interest of the animals that there be some strict protocols for safely transporting them. And that can be paid attention to. But again, it should be a temporary measure that this is going to be something that happens for six months or a year and is not seen as a crutch and a source where, again, the mentality becomes yeah, we have to have these puppies born because we have to send them to New England where they're needed. 
but again, and that's a lot of the focus is on pulling from shelters, and there's uh, little help often available for the rural communities that don't have shelters where it's easier for rescue groups to go and, and pull from. So our trailer parks and the rural areas, you had mentioned a story of, you know, six unspayed females and two unneutered males at a house, and they're asking you for help. And at this point in time, you can't offer any help. Yeah, again, that's why I'm despondent. (laughs) But I'm trying not to circle the drain, although I'm not as optimistic as some others that we will come out of this stronger, because I think here in Tennessee, we're going to be set back years in a lot of our areas. Well, hopefully, by the time folks are listening to this, we will have a game plan somewhat in place, and hopefully we will be in a better position by August than we are right here in April. And I do think, though, it's important for us to consider the restrictions that were put on in spay-neuter around this period of time, look back and learn and see what we could do differently so that we could ensure that we can continue operations and not necessarily think that this is a best practice going forward. Maybe it was the only practice that we could think of at that particular time. But if we're in August, this is the time to think about going forward. You know, what can we do? How can we keep going through another crisis or a socially distanced situation and really think about the spay-neuter as an essential? Because if we go for six months to a year without spay-neuter services on a large scale, we are going to be running into some substantial troubles. But I do want to end on a positive note. So hopefully, like I said, by this time, we will we'll make it, we will have a better plan and understand this better. Before we close out, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners, Julie? From where I sit in a rural reality basis, spay-neuter is an essential service. There's many, many communities in Tennessee and across this country where it is the only tool at our disposal for animal welfare and for protecting and saving the lives of kittens and cats and dogs and puppies. Yeah, that's great. And let's hope that we do have a bright side going on for us. And the other thing is it's really important for you to support your local clinic. So, If you have a low-cost spay-neuter clinic, high-quality, high-volume spay-neuter clinic in your area, this would be a great time to support them, help them get going, do whatever you can, even if it, you know, it doesn't have to involve bringing animals, but donate to them, do a fundraiser for them, do what you need to do in order to get that clinic back up and running in your community because it's critical. It is essential to have an affordable spay-neuter option in your community. And let's do everything we can to ensure that none of these clinics go bankrupt during this time. So thank you again for tuning in. Julie, I want to thank you again for being a great guest on the show, as well as for all of your hard work and efforts with regards to the Community Cats Grants Program. If folks are interested in finding out more about the Community Cats Grants, they can email Julie at grants at communitycatspodcast.com. And Julie, what's your website for Spay Tennessee? SpayTennessee.org. And so if you want to find out about Julie's work in Tennessee, get updates on how those clinics are doing. She keeps an eye on them. She keeps in touch with them all. And, um, you know, feel free. You can reach out to her if you want to do anything to help keep those clinics up and running. Make sure that we're reaching out and really understanding the rural reality and getting those services out to them. So thank you again for tuning into the show and have a great week. Thanks, Stacey. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think, and a five-star review really helps others find the show. 
You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening. And thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats.